invite you to open your Bible this morning to Romans chapter 8 as we continue our study of this tremendous letter, gospel letter, Romans chapter 8. While you're doing that, just want to thank those who are in the overflow room and for all of us for taking our turn. That, that just appreciate the willingness of folks to do that as we... Um, as we just make our way forward and welcome those who join us, um, put some strains on us, but they're good strains, and I um, just want to thank the folks in the overflow this morning, and for all of us as we, as we take our turn in that. We are in Romans chapter 8, as we're uh, continuing to move forward, looking this morning at verses 18 through 25, we've already addressed uh, per- pretty thoroughly verses 18 and 19, or verse 18, excuse me, but, so we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 25 Particularly, let's give our attention to God's Word. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the firstfruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's bow and ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, now as we come to your word, given us by the Holy Spirit, we ask the Spirit to give us hearts and eyes to see it, to hear it. And Jesus, please do your ongoing work of sanctification in our lives as you wean us from the things of this world and and more and more, Lord, set our hearts and minds on what is yet to come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last uh, Sunday evening, if you were here, you know that we talked about bitter hearts as we looked at Psalm 39. I was um, intrigued by the amount of response um, that I heard back from that sermon, it seems like a lot of us, maybe most of us, wrestle with some bitterness in our heart. We experience trials and and evils, losses, heartbreak, brokenness in this world, and it hurts. And, And our pain, combined with our pride, our demand that it We shouldn't have to suffer these things. We deserve better, whatever it might be. The pain combined with the pride can easily morph into bitterness. And that bitterness can be directed then uh, towards, well, those closest to us maybe who have wounded or are wounding us. It can be directed towards political movements, parties, political parties that seem to threaten our way of life. It can be directed even toward God. I was talking to someone this week who confessed that they were struggling with bitterness toward God. Have you ever felt that way? Bitter towards God? I have. It's a fearful sort of thing, but I think it's common in the church. 
We just maybe don't examine it. But it's maybe underneath our lack of delight in Christ, love for Christ, zeal for His cause in the world, our fear. Well, our text this morning is a perfect companion to the uh, fact of heart bitterness. Because our text this morning acknowledges the reality of the pain, doesn't try to pretend otherwise, acknowledges the brokenness in our lives and and around us, and so in that sense it validates our pain. When Paul talks about the suffering of this present time, he says, I consider that the suffering of this present time isn't worth comparing, but it's real. It It doesn't overlook it. But it places that pain against the panorama of the grand story of redemption, The great story of God making everything new. And there in that context we find our pain giving way to hope and our bitterness being transformed into anticipation. You see, the the genius of the gospel story is that God in Christ gives us a brand new way of looking at ourselves and looking at the world around us as we get a view of what's yet to come, the glory that God has prepared for us. We get a bird's eye view then of of where we are uh, in in the moment and, and where we're going so that we're not lost or disoriented or dismayed uh, by the pain and the, the hard things that we currently experience. Let, let me just give you an illustration to maybe help make this point. Imagine if you were really and truly lost in some vast wilderness. Uh, you've been walking for days. Uh, you have no idea where you are. You're weak from hunger and lack of sleep. All you can see around you are just endless miles of rocks and hills and trees. You have no idea where you are, no idea uh, where hope might be found or, or how to get there. You are completely disoriented and you are in despair. Because it seems certain that you are going to die. You're facing the reality that this is most likely what's going to happen. You're going to die alone in this vast, empty place. But then amazingly, you come across a map that someone has stapled to a tree. And it identifies exactly where you are and shows uh, a path uh, because there's a town just through the valley and over the next hill about an hour walk away. How would that impact you? Well, you, your fear and your dismay, your despair, would immediately give way to hope. You're going to make it. It's, it's going to be okay. You know where you are. You know where you're going. You know how to get there. You are saved already, even though you're still in the wilderness. You're already rescued, in truth, because the map has, has shown you where you are and, and where help is found, and, and has convinced you. You have this confidence that you're going to be able to make it through the valley and over the hill, and you're going to be home. And so it doesn't matter now, as you start your, your trek, it doesn't matter how tired you might feel, it doesn't matter how steep the hill might be, or how rugged the trail you're going to press on with joyful eagerness and great anticipation. You're going to endure whatever trials and and, and hardships there might yet be in your way because you're almost home. You're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Well, that's what Paul means when he talks about the hope in which we've been saved. And that's the title of my message this morning, the hope 
in which we were saved. As a gospel messenger, Paul is, in a sense, laying out the map of God's great redemptive plan, and he shows us exactly where we are on the map and how close we are to our eternal home and assures us that whatever trials we face between here and there, it's more than worth it. As he said in verse 18, the suffering now can't, is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory is home. That's what we were created for and saved for. And, and that glory, Paul says, is, is just through the valley and over the next hill. We're going to be there very soon. Very soon. And so we can live in the wilderness of this world now with this eager, joyful conviction and anticipation. This is the hope in which we've been saved. And that hope, you see, will transform the bitterness that is so common and replace it with anticipation. That's our hope. That's what hope does. The text this morning divides easily into two parts. In verses 19 and 22, Paul speaks of the experience of creation. And then 23 through 25, he speaks of the experience of God's children. And so let's look at God's word together as we begin verse 19, the experience of creation. Paul says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul personifies the created world. Um, and when he talks about the created world, he's talking about everything that isn't human. So the, the, the animals and the birds and the rocks and hills and trees and, and stars. Uh, Paul is inviting us, you see, to, to see not just our own needs and our own feelings and desires, which is what we usually focus on, but just to lift our head and to think about the longing of God's creation all around us. Because he says creation is very eager for something in the future. The rocks and the hills and the animals and trees are eagerly longing, he says, for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting with keen anticipation for the day when the sons and daughters of God will be raised from the dead, incorruptible, and robed with glory in the presence of Jesus. They're waiting for us to be redeemed in the full, to the uttermost, right, with, with glorified bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, why would they be waiting for that? Why is creation longing for that? Well, because creation has been subjected to futility ever since the fall of Adam into sin and will only experience its full God-intended glory when the sons of Adam are glorified. So just as creation fell in our fall, creation is going to be glorified in our glorification. As you remember, boys and girls, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God cursed the ground because of their sin. Genesis 3, verse 17. And creation has borne the burden of that curse ever since. The created reality around us. And Paul uses two phrases to explain what the uh, creation is experiencing. He says creation has been subjected to futility in verse 20. In verse 20. Subjected 
to futility, and then in 21, in bondage to corruption, in bondage to decay. You drive around the country and you see these beautiful old barns that once were so useful and and strong and tall, and now they're just collapsing. And it won't be long before they're not there at all anymore. And that's just a little microcosm of what's happening to creation. You see, something devastating and tragic happened when Adam fell into sin, and futility and death and decay became part of the warp and woof of God's beautiful world. We've gotten used to it. We, we, we just walk around this planet, with this world, as though this is the way it is and the way it's supposed to be, but, but it's not the way it's supposed to be at all. There's a, there's a heartbreaking futility and bondage to death and corruption that, that defines the created world, and it should not be this way. I, I just, I've told you this story before, but I just remember, you know, grew up on the farm, you see a lot of death. Um, you know, kittens and calves and cows and, 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 and chickens and whatever's there, you see a lot of death. And, and I clearly I remember September 30, 1974, I was 11 years old, and I'm walking through the barn <clears throat> to say goodbye to the entire herd uh, because someone at the feed mill had mixed uh, fire retardant in the feed, and the cows were all poisoned. And, um, and so before I went to school that morning, I walked through the barn to to say goodbye. I knew most of them by name. And uh, they were resting in their stalls, chewing on their cud like every other morning. But the trucks were waiting outside to carry them away to a place where they would all be shot and buried by that evening, every single cow and calf we had. And I remember thinking how wrong it was because it wasn't their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. They were just living their God-ordained life, eating and providing milk and being what God had called them to. They didn't do anything wrong. But they were going to suffer the consequences of man's mistake and man's sin. And I had a keen sense that this wasn't just because some guy at the feed mill messed up. This is because way back at the beginning, Adam messed up. And that, that all of creation suffers because of what we've done to it. And I felt as I was walking through the barn that I owed them a profound apology. I'm so sorry for what we've done. And I think that's appropriate to feel the burden of that. Have you ever just felt like apologizing to the created world because of what we've done to it in our sin? Because all the death and decay and futility of this creation was caused by man's sin. However, that's not the end of the story. And praise God for that. Creation, you see, was not cursed just as a tragic consequence of Adam's sin, but, but it, was, it was placed under a curse as an intentional act of God's redemptive purpose. So that Paul tells us that, that God has done this, and, and God did this for a marvelous reason. He subjected creation to futility in hope. And that that means, you see, that the futility and the decay and the death that we see all around us in creation, it's not ultimate or final. It's not ultimate or final. It's part of the redemptive plan. God's redeeming purposes are ultimate and final. And God did this to creation in response to man's sin in the sovereign, immutable, 
conviction of his own mind and heart that his good creation so ruined by man's sin would one day be set free from its bondage and would obtain the freedom of the glory of the blood-bought children of God. And so from the very beginning, God promised and intended a full redemption and a complete restoration of every beautiful thing that He made. And that hope is the ultimate story of creation. And so creation waits with eager longing, wouldn't you? It waits with eager longing. The word Paul uses, it refers to someone standing on their tiptoes and straining their neck, trying to, to see ahead. It's an image full of hope and anticipation. Paul uses a, a word picture in a sense in verse 23 where he, he talks about a childbirth. Creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. Well, those are very real pains, but they're pains of anticipation. They're pains of looking forward to what is to come, this new life. There's, there's hope, you see, in the midst, great hope in a childbirth and the pains of it. And he said, Paul says that the creation then is eagerly looking for the day of our final full transformation because on that day creation itself will enter into its full and final transformation. This, this magnificent cosmic transformation of the created universe, you see, is at the heart of God's redemptive purpose. He did not send His Son to die on a cross just to save individual sinners from hell. But in Jesus Christ, God has purposed to redeem and restore all of His beautiful, broken world. The prophets of old spoke with great poetic force about God's cosmic redemption. Let me just give you a few from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 700 years before Christ comes, speaks of this cosmic final renewal of all things. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. It's a magnificent picture of peace, of shalom, when things are the way they were meant to be. Isaiah 65, verse 17, God says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And when Jesus came, he says, Behold, I'm making everything new. That's his promise to the church. And that's the hope of creation. That's what creation is longing for. And so when you hear of Earthquakes and fires and famines and floods. Remember, it's not the ultimate story. These are the birth pangs of a new creation. And even when everything seems to be breaking apart, when economies collapse and nations fall, these are the birth pangs of a new heaven and a new earth. And rather than frantically scramble to try to 
to make eternal what is meant to be temporal instead of frankly trying to build our life and make our life in a, in a, in a decaying world. Christians then, you see, we're called with creation to have the same eager anticipation. We're looking forward. And so Paul talks about the experience, secondly, of a Christian. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul outlines some very basic truths that define our experience in the wilderness of this world. Let me just list three things that we find here in verse 23. First of all, he says we have the first fruit of the Spirit. That, that's a magnificent thing that, 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 that determines everything else. God has given His Holy Spirit to His children, and we have that Spirit as the first fruit. Paul will talk about that in other places as well. The first fruit of the harvest, of course, is the first gathering that assures that there's much, much more yet to come. I remember one of my favorite times on the farm was the fall when we'd, we'd go about chopping corn. And that first load would tell us everything we needed to know about the yield that we could expect that year. It was the first fruit guaranteeing everything that was yet to come. And that's how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. As we wait for the full glory of what God has purposed for us and accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, as we live now in the wilderness looking and moving towards home, God himself has come to meet us both in Jesus Christ, His Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And there's a world of comfort and confidence in that. If God has sent the second person of the Trinity to die in our place and rescue us in truth from death and judgment, and God has sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to come and seal to us the work of Christ and to be a the first fruit guaranteeing what is yet to come. Well, if you are a spirit-filled Christian, a true Christian, you can't be lost. You're going to make it. It's going to be okay. There is indescribable glory for you just over the next hill. For you, the child of God. God the Father, God the Son, and, the, and God the Holy Spirit are all sovereignly and relentlessly invested in bringing you into your, your full future glory. And it's precisely because the Spirit dwells within us in, then that we groan as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons. The Christian experience is an experience of groaning, not grumbling, Groaning, and it's a different sort of thing. It's, the groaning here is this, it's not just a response to pain, but it is a, it's a deep longing in the midst of the wilderness and in the truth of pain for what is yet to come. We want to go home. We want to see Jesus. You see, the children of God have this spirit-wrought hunger that nothing in this world is going to satisfy 
Not a new house, not a new job, not a new wife, not, um, not, a, not a, a, a better, more fit body. Nothing in this world, not money, not fame. The Lions could win the Super Bowl. It's not, it, it doesn't matter. It'd be a miracle of its own making, but it's not, it's not even an iota of life you see in that, in sports, entertainment. It doesn't, it doesn't quench the longing that the Spirit of God is placed within you. It can't. You see, I think C.S. Lewis is exactly right that we, we, we try to quench our desires for eternal things with, with passing pleasures, and it will never work. Allow yourself to feel the hunger for what God has promised, to, to long for the day when, when things will be made right. To yearn for a world where children will no longer go without food and, and starve in Africa and, and, and no longer suffer abuse. To ache for a world where there's no more tragedies, no more funerals, no more accidents, no more wars, no more wheelchairs, no more diseases or disabilities. When's the last time you just, you just longed and sat down and yearned for, for that day? No more broken promises. No more, no more cut-off potential. Young people struck down in their prime. We, no more cancer wards. No more depression or anxiety. None of it. None of it. Do you think about it? Have you, do you yearn for it? Do you allow yourself to go there? Just to be excited and eager for what is yet to come? Don't we want all the weariness and the weeping of this world to end and for Christ to usher us into the eternal beginning? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.12, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's the experience of God's children. We groan with anticipation of what's yet to come. The, the Christian's prayer is Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Second to last verse in the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. And in that prayer, we wait. Paul speaks of waiting twice here, verse 23 and 25. It's a key part of the believer's experience. Waiting, you see, friends, means we understand that we're not there yet. This, we're not home yet. We're still in the wilderness. And so we don't demand to be satisfied now. We don't demand... What this world can't offer now. We don't demand to be healed now. We don't demand to have that, uh, you know, our relationships be deeply rich with, with health and shalom and peace. It's not the way it's going to be in the wilderness. Relationships are going to be fraught with conflict and failure and sin and brokenness. It's, it's the nature of life in this world. So waiting means we just accept that. And, 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 be willing to receive that. There's going to be loss and brokenness and hurt and betrayal, failure, sin. That's where we live. We're in the wilderness. But if you see, if we, if we wait, 
We're not just acknowledging that this is the way it, it is now, waiting is saying, but it's not always going to be this way. And so our hope, you see, is fixed on what we do not yet see. And we wait then for our hope with patience. What exactly are we waiting for? Well, Paul says we're waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That could be a little confusing since Paul has just said in verse 15 that we have already received the spirit of adoption. But the image is actually very helpful as if you just imagine a little five-year-old girl in an orphanage and the orphanage is all that she's ever known. And yet, for as long as she can remember, she's also known this, this inexplicable yearning to have a family, to have a mom and dad of her own, to, be, to have brothers and sisters, to have her own room, to, be, to belong to a family and have their last name. She wants it more than anything else in the whole world. And then one day the nurse comes and tells her uh, that she's, she's been adopted by this loving couple that that's been coming to see her. The legal papers are all signed. She is already, in that moment, the legal and loved daughter of this, of this loving couple. She, she already belongs to their family. And all that's left now is to wait for them to come and pick her up. Now, is she going to be content as she's waiting there um, in the orphanage that, to say, well, I've been adopted? No, no, the adoption, you see, just fires all the desire even more. Because now that she's been adopted, she doesn't want to just, just settle for the fact of being adopted. She wants the experience of a family. She wants the experience of being in that home and being in, in, with a mom and dad who tuck her in at night. She wants the full experience of it. You see, friends, and that's where we live. We're already adopted the legal work has already been done. The papers are signed. We're already part of the family of God. We're already heirs of glory. But now we're waiting for Jesus to come and bring us into the full experience of our salvation. We weren't adopted just for this life. Paul says that, right? If we're, if we're just saved for this life, well, we're of all men most miserable. This isn't... This isn't Jesus didn't die so we could just have a nice Midwestern life. We've been adopted so that we can experience glory. So that we can be in the very presence of God and God himself with us and, and we dwell there with his people and everything is as it ought to be. No more death, crying, pain, no more disease. And we live forever and forever with glorified bodies and glorified minds and hearts. That's the reality that Jesus accomplished for us, purchased for us. And we want to experience that. And we're waiting for Jesus to come and bring us there. Notice Paul doesn't say that we are eagerly waiting for heaven. He says, we're eagerly waiting for the, our full adoption, the redemption of our body. Heaven will be glorious, right? And one of the great comforts that we have is when our loved ones die, they are immediately consciously in the presence of Jesus Christ. When, when Randy passed away, uh, he was immediately consciously in the presence of Jesus. 
And he was so looking forward to that. But you know what? He was looking forward to even, in a sense, more than that. was not just to, be, to see Jesus in his conscious self after death, but to walk with Jesus in his glorified self after the resurrection. We, we had conversations about that. That going to be with Jesus uh, as a, in our spirit is, is beautiful, but it's, it's not the ultimate thing we long for. I want to I run in, in the fields of heaven with a glorified body and walk with glorified saints and, and do whatever work that God has for me to do with, 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 this, with this body, but in, its, in a brand new glorified sense. And to do it all in the presence of Jesus. You see, to walk with Jesus in his glorified body. And to talk with Jesus in his glorified self. That, that's the ultimate desire of a child of God. That, that's the spirit-wrought desire, uh, the spirit-wrought desire in our heart. And it won't be satisfied with anything less than the full renewal of everything, including our own body. We're not going to be satisfied in an ultimate sense until this perishable body is raised imperishable. Do you remember the prayers of the saints in the book of Revelation? Where in the presence of Jesus, do you know what they say? Do you know what they, they, do you know what they ask? How long? How long? We want, it, we want the full thing. We want the devil and all of his demons and works to be destroyed. We want Jesus to be revealed in all of his glory and magnified as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we want his kingdom to come in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in all of its grandeur, forever and ever. How long, O oh Lord? That's what the saints in heaven say. We're not going to be satisfied until what is corruptible is raised incorruptible and what is weak is raised in power and what is mortal is swallowed up by eternal life. That's the hope in which we were saved. That's the hope in which we were saved. And everyone who has this hope waits for it eagerly and patiently. Eagerly and patiently. You know what's one of the things that's wrong with health, wealth, gospel? They're not willing to wait. They're going to demand that Jesus gives me a healed body and Jesus gives me riches in this world and Jesus gives me whatever I want here and now. Well, no, it doesn't work like that. We wait. And we wait patiently, eagerly. We don't make our home here, but patiently. And friends, you see how that mentality removes and replaces the bitterness with anticipation. You see, bitterness comes when we fix our eyes on all that is wrong with the world and all that we've lost in the world. And we feel like God has let us down. But waiting fixes our eyes on all that we have in Christ and all that we will gain in glory in His presence as everything is made new for the glory of God. And you see, then then we're able to let the bitterness go because it's, it's not the final story. It's not the ultimate truth. The, the hurt that we've experienced is real. The wrongs, they're real. The losses that we grieve are real. They matter. They do matter. They matter to us. They matter to God. 
None of it is lost. But they're not ultimate, they're not final. They're birth pangs. They're birth pangs of what is yet to come. And so as we grieve the losses and experience the futility, as we face death, we live in hope. Hope. We're almost home. Just over, just, just over the next hill. And we're almost there. As Peter says, and we read it earlier in the service, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope, friends, there. And watch God do a beautiful work of transformation in your life. We are, we tend to be, as American Christians, worldly Christians. Our cares are so much bound up in the things of this life and this world and, and things that are passing away. And, and God is just calling us to be heavenly-minded Christians, new heaven and new earth-minded Christians, to let that hope actually resonate and function in our life. About uh, two months before Randy died, the Hope Heralds, a group of men that he sings with, they came and... Um, we were doing a, a hymn sing, our family, and they, they came and they sang, and there's a song that, they've, that they sing. I encourage you to watch it on YouTube. I listen to it often. Hope Heralds, the song is called One Day. Uh, Randy sings one of the, the solo parts in it. And he, was, he sang this in concert a year ago as um, the cancers was coming back. And this is how the song goes. One day you'll make everything new, Jesus. One day you will bind every wound. The former things shall all pass away. No more tears. And one day you'll make sense of it all, Jesus. One day every question resolved. Every anxious thought left behind. No more fear. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. One day we will see face to face, Jesus. Is there a greater vision of grace? I don't think it couldn't possibly be. And in a moment we shall all be changed on that day. And one day we shall be free, free indeed, Jesus. One day all this struggle will cease and we will see your glory revealed on that day. Friends, when we all get to the new heaven and the new earth, what a day of rejoicing that's going to be. We made it. God was faithful. We're home. That is the hope in which you were saved. Let that hope permeate life now in the wilderness. Amen. Lord Jesus, you gave your life so that one day those who know you by the gift of grace will step onto the shore of a new heaven and a new earth. And we will do so with glorified bodies made like the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there'll be no more sin and no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. And in its place, there will be only joy, only laughter, 
glory, honor, strength, beauty, truth, and through it all, grace. Beautiful, beautiful oceans of grace. And Father, we, we long for that day. We confess that we long too little. We try to satisfy the yearning of our heart with, with fleeting, passing things. Forgive us for that. Oh God, I just pray that your word would make us your people, people with their hearts and minds set on things above where Jesus Christ is seated, set on our future and final home. So that, Lord, we have a correct understanding of where we are here in the wilderness and, and how to get home by your grace and by your power. Jesus, we thank you that we can have this confidence because you yourself have given us the pledge in your body and blood through your spirit. And so, oh God, we pray that these truths would, would really, truly take root in our, in our life and we would examine our relationships and our work and our, our material possessions, our dreams, all in light of the hope in which we've been saved. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come soon, that you would come quickly and make everything as it ought to be. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.